Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Peter Kaminsky, and he'll be answering your questions on the catch of a lifetime. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, oh, sorry, X, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. If you have a chance, do it while you're listening to the show so you can let other people know about the, the great information we're providing on these shows. The content of the broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing businesses ask about fly fishing. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel spring creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service for this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, that's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800 800- 962-9755. Before we introduce Peter, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Peter's section that says register for a free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Peter's book, The Catch of a Lifetime, courtesy of Workman Publishing Company. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Peter and I talk about during the show. You'll just submit the answer along with your name and your location, email address, on that form on our homepage. It's the same form that you can ask questions at, through during the show. So listen closely, take notes. Type fast, and maybe you'll be the proud winner of Peter's book, The Catch of a Lifetime. Our guest tonight is Peter Kaminsky. Peter is one of America's leading angling journalists and authors. His outdoors column has appeared in the New York Times for 35 years, a recipient of the C.F. Orvis Outdoor Writing Award. Peter has been a contributing editor at Field and Stream, Sports Field, an outdoor life, and was managing editor of the National Lampoon. His angling writing has appeared in Fly Fisherman, Condé Nast Traveler, 
Smithsonian Magazine, GQ, The Field, and Angler's Journal. Among his books are The Moon Pulled Up, An Acre of Bass, American Waters, The Fly Fisherman's Guide to the Meaning of Life, Fishing for Dummies, and Fly Fishing for Dummies. As an avid cook, he's also a fisherman. He's written 18 books, including three with Francis Maltman, and his television credits include creator and executive producer of the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor and the Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. Peter, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you, Peter. And just folks, so you know, it's a small world. The, the way I found out about Peter was taking a cooking class in Oaxaca, Mexico, with a world-class chef, Suzanne Trilling, and learning how to make Oaxacan food. And we were just chatting, and she's, well, what kind of things do you do? I told her, and she goes, oh, well, you have to call Peter and uh, get him on your show. So here's Peter. <laughs> so uh, that was a nice way to, a uh, nice introduction to you, Peter, through cooking, which you love as well, from what I understand. Yes, indeed. Actually, it's 18 cookbooks, maybe 19 cookbooks, and then oh, uh, a, whole okay. bunch, a whole bunch of other books. Right, right. I know, it's, it's yeah. easy to lose track. <laughs> I guess, I guess, after writing that many, many books. Is there, was there a specialty in uh, cookbooks that you, you had? Well, I've written all over the place. I have done a bunch of grilling books. Oh, okay. People know the Francis Melman books, I guess, from the Netflix uh, Chef's Table. I did a tailgating book with John Madden, the great coach Madden. And I also wrote a, a book with Adam Perry Lang, a, a great barbecue chef. But I've, I've written about all kinds of food and all kinds of oh. books. Okay, folks, I have to look those up, too, by Peter. Well, Fred Miller wrote in from Denver, Colorado, and he says, yeah, you've written several books. What gave you your start in writing? What gave you my start in writing? Well, I, uh, I was in grad school in anthropology, and I just didn't have, you know, 50 cents. So through a friend, I got myself a job at National Lampoon, kind of writing stuff, a flat letter for the publisher, and pretty soon became evident my talents laid on the editorial side of the magazine, so I started writing there. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. And how did you move from the National Lampoon, which is a seems like a long reach to writing about cooking and fly fishing. Well, I uh, I wasn't a fisherman at the time. The, the Lampoon was a pretty crazy place in the 70s. You know, a lot of drinking, a lot right. of substances, and uh, it was nuts. And I took a vacation with my girlfriend in the Florida Keys, and it was 39 degrees in Havana, so beaching was out. And I saw a sign for a party boat. It said, uh, Red Snapper, all day, $9. And I went on, and I caught a 35-pound grouper, actually, and won the pool for a high hook, and I loved fishing. So I became addicted to it. And that next winter, I was in Mexico, in the Yucatan, and uh, I just happened to drive up to a, a lodge, and they invited me for lunch. And I said, this place is great. And so we stayed there, and I was just spin fisherman at the time, so I caught bonefish, I caught a few permit, didn't know how lucky I was at the time, 
But that's when I saw fly fishing. And uh, I just, you know, it was love at first sight. I just had to learn to do it. So I came back and I did. And as happens to people when they get bitten by the bug, I just wanted to do as much of it as I can. So when I got fired from Lampoon, which everybody did at some point, the bar was not that high for getting into fishing writing. And so that's what I did. It was a different world then. You could actually make a living as a, or almost make a living, you know, as a magazine writer. And there were a lot of magazines. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what inspired you to write your latest book here, The Catch of a Lifetime? Or I should say edit, because it's you've written a lot of the prefaces for the section, so to speak, but it's really all your guests writing <laughs> in the book, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. What happened was I was talking to my the publisher and my editor at Artisan, which is an imprint of Workman, and uh, I said, you know, this last cookbook was a real heavy lift. I think you owe me a me book. Kind of flippantly, mm-hmm. I said that. And I said, oh, what do you want to write about? And I said, well, I want to go through Patagonia with fly rod and fork. And I'd still like to do that. And they said, well, oh, you fly fish. And I said, well, matter of fact, I do. And they said, well, we have this series, a man and his watch, and a man and his guitar, and a man and his car. His car. How would you like to write a fly fishing book? I said, well, I would. A man and his rod doesn't have a nice ring to it. And uh, actually, the biggest growth area in the sport is women. So let me think of what we want to call it. And then I just thought a while, and I had this idea of asking people, when I say the word fly fishing to you, where does your mind go? What scene does it put you in? And I want you to write about that encounter with a fish, period. You know, maybe five, seven hundred words. And it turned out to be just a wonderful stroke of luck because it was a very focused book that I got from people, focused stories. It wasn't really all these uh, sort of gushy love letters to fly fishing or Zen, you know, pseudo-Zen meditations. I got real experiences, and there's a great diversity of them. So that's kind of how the book happened. Now, how did you go about selecting the fly fishers and their stories for the book? I, well, I sought people out. I, um, it's interesting, you know, when you write a column in the newspaper, which I did in the Times for, for many years, you don't know the people who read you, but that column had tremendous reach. So, I mean, I wrote to some people who I knew fly authors, who I didn't know, but I knew fly fish, like um, Carl Hyacin, just a spectacular and funny writer. And, you know, he knew my work. He said, sure. And he wrote a great piece about uh, blowing it on a, a world record permit, as one can do with world records. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, I found people that way. There's a website, an Instagram feed called Fly Lords, which are they're in Colorado. And they were just wonderful. And I started following them. And they would occasionally have, you know, feature a person who I would follow up with. And that's how I found Katie Kahn. She's actually on the cover of the book. 
And I'm really proud to have a woman on the cover of a fly fishing book. And I wrote about how she was a cancer survivor, and fly fishing helped her find her way back into life. And I've been that route, so it really struck home with me. And so I called her up and got a wonderful story about her from her. And we've become, you know, quite friendly. I mean, it's just it's a long-distance kind of internet correspondence, but we've become good friends. And so one thing would lead to another. Patagonia publishes some wonderful stories. And I contacted Steve Duda, who wrote for the book, and he pointed me to some people who I never would have known. So it was, you know, my upstairs neighbor had a friend who's a writer, a woman who is kind of retired and travels the world having fly fishing adventures. So she wrote a book. Every way that I got to somebody was different. But, you know, when you're sitting at home and you're just, you know, pointing and clicking and calling friends and stuff, it turns out you can find stuff. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, you've got some pretty notable people in here. I mean, Joan Wolfe, right? Uh, Hillary Joan. Hutchinson, which has come on the scene quite uh, recently. Yeah. Yep. Um, other people like, well, Jared Susu from Fly Lords. Oh, Fly Lords. Uh, yep. Right, right. I also see another chef here, Tom Calicchio. Yeah, and, Tom and uh, I, we go. Yeah. We go way, way back. One of my earlier magazine stories was like an 8,000-word piece, a cover story for New York Magazine, where I was a restaurant critic, about the opening of Gramercy Tavern, which was Tom's first restaurant that he was a partner in. And in an early meeting up at his house, I saw some beautifully tied flies that he made and realized he was a fly fisherman. And so we bonded over that, and we have fished in the year since. So that's how Tom came into the piece. Right, right. Others I recognize, Bob White, a great artist. Bob. And, yeah, and uh, well, Paul Bruin, yeah. Paul's uh, just, you know, a classic and a funny man. Yeah. Paul, um, isn't Paul up on the Snake River, if I remember right? Uh, well, he's in Miami. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep, up by Jackson. I interviewed him on my show. Exactly. So he's, uh, exactly. yeah, we did a, a show with him as well. And uh, just looking, John McMurray talking about Bluefin, Nick Lyons, <laughs> well-known name well, in publishing Nick, for fly fishing, Nick, yeah. Nick is my saint. When I first started writing about fly fishing, he saw my stuff. You know, it was different than, you know, the run-of-the-mill hook-and-bullet stuff of that time. And he really took an interest in me. And actually, when Nelson Bryant, who was the regular outdoors columnist on Times, was cutting back, they needed someone to fill in. And they asked Nick to do it. And uh, Nick, I guess he wrote a few pieces. And then, you know, he had a job as a professor and Hunter, and he was doing the back page of uh, Fly Fisherman. He said, you know, uh, I think I should recommend someone else for this. And he turned the times on to me, and uh, I'm forever in his debt. And all through the years, he's uh, always come through with encouragement. And 
you know, you can't help but hold Nick up as a model. His writing is from the heart and clear as air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another writer I, I recognize here and know, he used to live just down the mountain from me, is Kirk Dieter. Many oh, know Kirk. Kirk from Trout Magazine and Angling Trade and uh, those kinds of things. Yeah. How do you know Kirk? Well, many years ago, I wrote The Moon Pulled Up an Acre of Bass about the autumn run out on the east end of Long Island. And one of the main characters in the book is a woman named Amanda Switzer. And she told me about her, some of her friends who had done a book called Castwork. Kirk was one of the authors for that. And they, they asked me to read it and write a little something about it, which I did. So then when I saw, when I was putting this book together, I knew of Kurt's affiliation with TU. Or that's why I followed him of late. And he said, sure. He did a piece called Son of the Sun God about the first trip to the Tsumani region in Bolivia for Dorado, where I've been. And it's, it's the world's most remote place. So that was, and Kirk ended up writing just the most wonderful review I've ever had for anything I've ever done in Trout Magazine. He called this book a book for the ages. And uh, you can't pay to get that kind of copy. So I'm in Yeah, I think it was, is that in the current issue or the, the just prior to it that? Is. It was one of, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's a, uh, it is a good piece. It is a good piece. I read it and, uh, yeah, he does so well with his words as well. You know, is the reason I pulled him out of there as well. I also see Flip Pallet. Yeah. Flip come yeah. about? Uh, how did I get to Flip? Well, we have mutual friends. I forget. It might have been through Paul Dixon. I'm trying to remember. Or it might have been through Hyacin. You know, it's it yeah, a, hard to know. It was yeah. a, multi, a multi-step process there. I just, I guess I, I zeroed on it in on him to the Florida Mafia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, we did have kind of a, um, kind of just a comment from his own experience, his own story, from Jib Bud, Bud in, um, in Lincoln, Nebraska. He wrote in and he says, you probably will address this question tonight, but in case you don't, what constitutes a catch of a lifetime? He says, I'll share mine. Helping a severely autistic eight-year-old confined to a wheelchair, catch his first fish, a four-inch bluegill. That kind of is kind of the essence of what a catch of a lifetime is, right? And well, it's one of a number. A lot right. of people cite that kind of connection. Uh, there's a chapter called, As Long as I Can See the Light, about people who have overcome or helped others overcome, you know, some challenges in life. Matt Smythe wrote a terrific piece about working with wounded veterans. And there's a lot of that in the fly fishing world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, passing it on to someone who can enrich their life through it, whether it's your kid or, you know, someone going through a, a rough time or someone just looking for something to open up their spirit, that counts. Well, at the same time, some people wrote about the biggest fish they ever caught. Some write about right. the most exotic experience they've had and some write about something that tells you why they are happy to call where they live home so Mm -hmm. you know different strokes for sure 
Many different reasons. Yeah, that's why uh, that's why we love fly fishing because it it touches so many areas of our lives, you know, and our relationships. At least Absolutely I found that. And I, yeah, everybody I talk to says pretty much the same thing. But let's uh, take a quick break here, uh, Peter, and we'll come right back and we'll dig into some more these stories and, and background around them. So hang tight, and I'll be right back. You got it. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at uglybugflyshop.com or call them at 866 866- Eight four five nine two eight four. Again, that's the uglybugflyshop.com, or you can call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Peter Kaminsky about Catch of a Lifetime. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just fill out that form on our homepage, send it in, and we'll try to get it answered for you. Peter, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, what's going on in your fly fishing world now? I mean, finishing this book is a is a big accomplishment, but I'm sure uh, you don't sit idle for long. So what are you up to? Well, it's been a very good season here in New York City waters. Tremendous striper migration we have every year. It's been really good this year. So there's a group of us who fish out of a place out sort of marina, sort of at the end of Brooklyn. And uh, someone's out there every day, so I get the fishing reports and, you know, occasionally hop on a friend's boat and pay for the gas. So that's been good. I am I'm working on a cookbook with a chef up in Maine, so I did some fishing up there this past season. I will be going back to Patagonia in March. I've gone there for for 40 years. I love it. And so workmen liked this book, and they, they wanted a book, another book, which I just finished, which is a number of essays uh, from me about oh, different, nice. different aspects of the sport. And like this current book, The Catch of a Lifetime, it'll have a lot of photos in it. And I've been very lucky in being able to tap into all the, the best photographers and show their work in my book. So that'll be another splendid grab bag. And uh, I made some good friends through that route, through the photography route as well. So that's what's going on. Oh, cool, cool. So when will that book and the new cooking book come out, new cookbook? Uh, oh, a year or two, I guess. A year or two out, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. you finish the books. And uh, then, you know, they go through the process at the publisher. And then a lot of them get printed in China, a lot of books these days, especially books with nice art in them. So they get put on a container ship and spend six months getting here. So it's a long lead time. Long lead time, yeah. Well, we'll be anxious to to see those new books when they come out. And, uh, yeah, talking about some photography, you've got some beautiful photographs in you know, a catchable lifetime. Yeah, you had some nice contributions there as well. Yeah, the opening page for the Grand Slam section is 
is a killer aerial shot of it looks like a school of tarpon coming in there and uh oh yeah um, yeah just oh, i just yeah. want to be on that boat <laughs> get my shot yeah, right yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's the idea it was a lot yeah. of fun i've never you know sort of managed the art side of a book before and so i had to go out and find all these photos it was a big job but it was interesting and the nice thing about artisan is they just trusted me because I know a lot more about the sport than anyone there. And so the great thing was I didn't end up with a lot of just repetitive classic postcard shots. There's intimate shots. There's arty shots. There's action shots. And they all are something that I would stop and look at if I were reading a book. In fact, I did stop and look at them. That's, that's why they're in the book. So... Right. It, was a, it was a nice process. And like I said, I got to know some of these photographers. And one of the nice things about doing this book, about doing the Dummies books, was every uh, five years or so, ten years, I take on one of these projects, and you get introduced to a whole new generation of fly fishers. Otherwise, I just probably would have been you know, set in my ways and my friends and my ways of doing things and the fish I fished for. But, you know, I've met younger people who have their own deep passion about the sport. And so it's been a great connector or it's really maintained, you know, a living connection to the sport. Yeah, I agree. It's um, And a lot of these young people are like, I don't know, they're rock stars in their own right. You know what I mean? pushing on yeah. like an extreme skier or something like that, you know. I mean, that's how I associate some of these people because they do such incredible stuff. And with photography, like you're talking about, you know, with the drone work now, that wasn't, you know, when you and I grew up with that stuff just wasn't around, you know. Yeah. And now we yeah. have these photographs you can't get any other way, you know. And now it's been around long enough that it's not this shiny new toy that people overuse. Actually, people, now that they've gotten over the first thrill of it, they're actually getting command of how to tell a story from a different angle. Right, uh, right. Yeah, and it is um, it is quite different. I mean, my first career was as a commercial photographer, and I did a lot of advertising work, and I, I flew around in helicopters trying to get these shots with film, not digital. You know, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah, and it was not easy. It was not easy. And so I really appreciate all of the new tools they have out nowadays. Wish they were there when I was doing business. <laughs> I would have changed well, you know, my world, but you know. You know, Andy Anderson's work, perhaps. He's like, he's a very famous photographer. And, uh, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, maybe more. I did a project for a wildlife reserve in Tanzania, and I loved Andy's work that he'd done for Sims, so I hired him on that job. And we, you know, I remember trying to get photos of a herd of wildebeest. We were up in a chopper hanging out the doors and, you know, trying to get them head on. But every time you circle around to get a shot of wildebeest, they turn and run the other way. So, right. <laughs> Lesser shot, but it's a lot of rear ends. Oh, yeah, yeah. I understand that totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, tell us about 
some stories that, that really resonated you personally from the book. I'd like you to share a few of them if you'd like to read them, if, if they're not one of the longer ones, or just summarize them. That would be great to let people know, you know, some of the stories that are told. Well, all right. Let me, here's a bunch. I can, uh, I can give you my, you know, a section of my little story. Sure. Which is how I, how I told about what I call my fish of a lifetime. And it was, uh, in the late 70s on a silfish creek in the Catskills, one of the home waters of American fly fishing. Actually, it's the creek where Lee Wolf invented the Wolf series of flies. So it was a June morning in the Catskills. I stopped at Andy's, the local bait and tackle shop, for my regular fishing breakfast, coffee to go in a Clark bar. I continued on to the creek in the long pool known as Hunter's Flats. I crossed over the Cold Brook Bridge, which washed out some years later, and turned right, following the road to its end. I climbed the overgrown tracks of the railroad, and uh, wild strawberries, no bigger than gumdrops, shone ripe and red in the spaces between the railroad ties. I ate a few before entering the woods. The undergrowth was a tangle of barely leaped-in raspberry bushes and game trails that didn't seem to lead anywhere in particular. With no real landmarks, I wasn't sure where I was headed until I heard the river, uh, the river song of rushing water at the tail out of the pool. There were two boulders there that broke the current, and I could slide between them to thigh deep water and make my way to the glide above the riffle. A cardinal called, and as I waded a third of the way across the river and looked back towards the soft water along the bank, I lit up a Marlboro. Although I haven't smoked a cigarette in nearly 40 years, I remember how a few minutes standing in a stream and having a leisurely smoke would help me contemplate the river and be alert to the ring of a rising trout and work out the angle of the cast. Sure enough, I saw the kiss of a trout quietly feeding, perhaps a spinner from the previous day's hatch of Dark Hendrickson's. I waited until the fish came up again, tossed my cigarette, stripped out 30 feet of line and put on an awesome old wolf about six feet upstream of the bank feeder. Time slowed. The trout took the fly. So that, he wasn't a big trout, but when you say fly fishing and uh, I have to picture a scene, I go first to that day. My brother actually, on that same stretch of water, not that day, took a picture of me in the creek. I had hair then, apparently, according to this photo. <laughs> yeah, well, I started I back then. <laughs> a lot of us did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I could picture the whole scene in my head as you read that. And, uh, and you know, there's been so many times when I've been in a similar scene and not exactly the same, but, you know, had the same kind of feeling of peacefulness and, and you know, one with the river kind of thing. So, yeah, that was nice. Yeah. Yeah. What about um, another story from one of your storytellers? Peter Heller, great novelist. He wrote The Guide, which is where I uh, came across his work. So he writes about a friend he fished with, uh, Jim Wagner. Great. I think he's from Taos. He's from New Mexico. Great artist. uh, Sort of a, I mean this in a good way, an American primitive artist. And uh, so... Jim liked to use the back of a plastic no trespassing sign for a pallet when he painted. I think that was his way of giving the finger to all the property owners to try to keep them out of the best fishing holes. 
He did have a secret spot. It was on a creek a few miles outside the tiny town of Hotchkiss, Colorado, in a valley surrounded by mesas and mountains. He went there on evenings, he could not, and he could not bear to see another soul. But one day he showed up, there were boot prints in the silt. The next day there were two more sets. Three, Jim drove home and dug out two, an old pair of running shoes. He carved a paw pad on long paws, screwed them to the bottom, and glued big tufts of fur between the toes, toes and drove back to a spot and stomped all over the bag. Word spread, and the local anglers freaked. They thought that maybe grizzlies had somehow <laughs> migrated down from Wyoming. Fish and live wildlife was called in, and the game wardens were stumped. It was definitely huge, and they'd never seen anything like it. They set live traps, but the creature eluded them. And for the next year, Jim had the place all to himself again. So, <laughs> kind of, kind of like that's that. good. Yeah, that's good. I I know Hotchkiss and Paonia right next door to it. I almost went over to, there to grow grapes one point in my life and make wine. Yeah. So uh, I know the area well. Yeah. And word travels fast in that valley. <laughs> so, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Well, that's... Uh, it's, I just have to say, you know, in, in the valley I live up here in uh, in Colorado, um, uh, there's a local, in fact, he lives across the street from me, he has a store in town, and, and he specializes in Sasquatch. <laughs> so, he does tours and hunts for Sasquatch and all this stuff, so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't have a pair of those uh, shoes in the back of his truck somewhere. But no, uh, no. anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was there a, a story that uh, I could say, you know, struck you emotionally? Well, certainly Katie Kahn's did, because she had been through, like I said, I mean, you wouldn't know it to look at her today, but she'd been through some really uh, serious cancer. Well, I guess all cancer is serious. And she was really down, and uh, she went with her husband, Daniel. She, she was a... I believe I have it right. Katie was a white water guide on the Chituga. That's the Deliverance River uh, for those who've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had taken up fly fishing. She lives in western North Carolina, to may said. And uh, so she was, um, she finally, after going through this health crisis, she and her husband Daniel went to fish a blue line in western North Carolina. And uh, I dressed for the weather and waded into the river. My husband stayed on the shore to watch. I felt the cold current and the pain from my operation as I made way upstream. I kept going. When I'm fishing, it's about what's going to happen to that fly. Will I land the fish? How will I feel if I lose it? What will it look like in the net? It's always about the fish. Just then, a nice book trout, my favorite fish, took the fly. After what I'd been through, it was a welcome dose of pure life. I inhaled a big breath of cold mountain air. My pulse quickened. I saw the jade green of the river around me, the richness of the dark dirt on the riverbank, the evergreen forest that canopied over me, canopied over me, and all through it, the bend in my rod. It reawakened the thrill of my very first fish on a fly. I brought the brookie into my net. She had vibrant red spots and a beautiful white stripe on her fins and was much prettier than the average gray stocky in our rivers. I looked up at Daniel on the shore. 
he was in tears. So was I. So, yeah, that one got me. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are many more in there as well. Yeah. What do you think, and maybe we'll come back and visit some more of these. I Just to preface you, I thought maybe we, uh, since Tom Galicio is a, an old friend of yours, maybe we'd uh, talk about him because I noticed he talked about Trey Combs, who I just had on my show, and I'm going to talk about him and about blue water fishing very soon. So that one kind of piqued my interest. But anyway, you know, how do you think fly fishing stories contribute to the cultural understanding, you know, of fishing in our communities? No, well, Does it help us? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I think fly fishing stories help build a community among fly fishermen. And, well, I, like I say, it's interesting. I found in writing the New York Times, which was not a fly fishing magazine, <laughs> yeah, right. I, had, I had to write to people. I wanted to interest them in reading a story, but they didn't necessarily know about fishing. So it was an interesting challenge. You didn't want to write, you didn't want to dumb it down and lose your fishing audience, but you didn't want to get so, you know, esoteric that you lost the general audience. So I think what good fly fishing writing on that level does communicate to people is what it feels like to be passionate about something that's of real importance to your life. And, you know, fly fishing is my way into that feeling. And it's other fly fishers' way into that feeling. But, you know, people could feel that way about golf. They could feel that way about cooking. They could feel that way about guitar playing. Uh, they could feel that way about conservation work. There's any number of ways that people can have that feeling. And if you write about yours in a human way, you know, that doesn't involve a lot of jargon, Folks can read it and they can say, oh, I get it. I guess I understand why that person feels really strongly about something. And then you're in a community of people who have a strong emotional bond to what it is that gives their life meaning. I mean, I, it's a little abstract and philosophical, but I think it's true. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it may have happened tonight in a certain way. I just got a note in on the Internet from Fred Miller in Denver, and he says, I like that four-inch bluegill story. I had not been thinking along similar lines. I was thinking only of myself for shame. I've caught many very large fish, but I now think they are not the true catches of a lifetime. And um, I, th I think he might have maybe caught the essence of, you know, uh, many parts of your book, if not the whole book. It's much more than just the big fish, right? In so many well, ways. Yes, it can be, but it definitely doesn't have to be. I think I think I started the book by saying I can remember certain fish I've caught better than old years of my life. That's not an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. And when you have one of those experiences, big fish, little fish, with your kid, with a friend, far away, just for that for those few seconds or for those few minutes time stops. It feels like it could be years. And um, when you wake up, it's just, you know, it's passed in a blink. But you definitely, 
experience time in a different way. And you're not so aware of time's passing. I mean, the rest of our lives, you know, the hourglass is emptying. But when you get in one of those wonderful moments of connection to the sport, there's no time. And, you know, that's a a great gift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, time to uh, take another quick break here, Peter. I'll be right back and uh, we'll continue on. Great. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Piglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Peter Kaminsky about the catch of a lifetime. If you'd like to ask Peter a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and uh, send us your question in that text box. Okay, Peter, um, we kind of answered Ed's question out there about uh, what are the common threads. Well, threads, themes, you did break your book up into, I guess, different sections or themes. You want to kind of go through those and tell us how you organize that in the book? I, I'm not a very organized person. I'll have to refer to the printed page here and <laughs> go look at the table of contents. Okay, sure. well, well, first trout. And uh, no question that's the heart of the sport and about which the most literature, good and bad, has been written. Uh, <laughs> good and bad, okay. <laughs> Atlantic, Atlantic salmon, the sport of kings, or as I sometimes call it, the sport of kings' ransoms. And that's also had a, a good amount of ink, so I did that. And then uh, I did a thing about steelhead and Pacific salmon, you know, different place on the biological family tree, but similar thrills. And, I, you know, I've never steelheaded. That seems to be a big hole in my life, and I'll have to remedy that. Then a chapter on dry fly, because for me, if there's one great moment in the sport, it's uh, trout taking flies uh, on the surface. So I talk about that. I didn't talk here, maybe, no, I didn't, uh, I just wrote it in my other book about how I've spent my life chasing the green drake spinner fall and uh, never hit it, even when there's green drake spinners in the air and they seem to blow off the stream just about, the, they're about to hit the water. Then I did one called, have rod, a chapter called, have rod will travel. Kirk Dieter's in that one. Henry Hughes. A uh, great poet and angling essayist wrote a story about fishing in the koi ponds in the Forbidden City in the, in Beijing. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Not getting executed. So Brittany Howard, great singer, wrote about fishing on the road uh, after a gig in Poland. And Willie Calvo, an old friend of mine, he's the, the grand old man as we're all becoming uh, older men, uh, of Argentine fly fishing. 
And he wrote a story about how when he was 10 years old, he and his uncle guided Eisenhower and his brother and how he only had a broken rod and he was ashamed to admit it and how when uh, Milton Eisenhower was getting into the stream, he tripped and stumbled and he thought he had broken the rod. So he apologized so profusely that there'll be a new rod. So that, that's how rod will travel. Then a story about Grand Slams, uh, Bones, Tarpon, Hermit, and uh, Snook. And, uh, you know, that's that's been the next great chapter in uh, the aristocrats of the sport. You know, after Trout, in the post-World War II period, people discovered equally finesse, exciting fishing for the Grand Slam fish. Right. And then I went uh, to inshore fishing, which uh, up in my neck of the woods is stripers, blues, albacore, occasional baby bluefin, and, you know, on the lower Atlantic seaboard and around the Gulf Coast, it's speckled trout and redfish. And, uh, you know, that's a whole new area of the sport in the last 30 years. Then I went into big game. Tom Colicchio did a piece about a white marlin. Uh, McMurray, who's close to me, did a piece about bluefin, and he's a he is a a great conservationist, and at the same time a big bluefin chaser. So there's a, a pulse pounding, big game thing. Then one called nightmares. It's just about those fish that have too many teeth and give you bad dreams. And uh, Rachel Maddow wrote a really <laughs> assured and crisp piece about catching a pike. Or a northern, as they're some call, sometimes called. Steve Duda did one about a barracuda. Um, Marcella Morales owns a great fly shop in Buenos Aires. He wrote about payara, which are the scariest-looking creatures ever to uh, swim the earth. And Bob White wrote about who I met in Argentina 40 years ago. He wrote about his first time as a muskie guide in Minnesota. What was it? It was oh, really? Up there. Yep. Hmm. That was good. Then I wrote about bass, you know, large and smallmouth, and not written enough about fish. I just think they're the greatest, and especially like in the Northeast, when people are just crowding each other off trout streams, you can have just wonderful topwater and streamer fishing for largemouth and smallmouth and have, you know, bodies of water all to yourself. So what about that? And then, as I said, I have a thing called As Long As I Can See the Light. And it's people about, you know, fishing, having fishing help them, help them through life's tough times, which is certainly done for me. And then Nick uh, Lyons and John McVie, just the masters, and they've both been, you know, big brothers to me all through my career. And uh, so I was just proud to have both of them rounding out the book. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. A lot of different areas there. And I'm sure the stories themselves cross over those lines uh, many times as well. Were there any challenges you faced while gathering these stories? Is there a story about the stories? Oh, now, you did ask that in your pre-pro questions here. I think, think mm -hmm. I had an answer. 
<laughs> Check your yeah. notes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, okay. Well, two challenges. I mean, I'm used to dealing with writing, and I'm used to editing. So, apart from a lot of uh, legwork, you know, I knew how to do that. And like I said, I was. I guess enough people knew who I was, or enough people would say he's all right, you can write for him, that I was able to do that. The photo research allowed, really, well, it took a lot of time, and it required me to keep things straight and organized, two skills which I'm still hoping to learn later in life. Uh, so that, that really was time-consuming and uh, took up a lot of mind share. And then writing the intros to each piece. I wanted to set the table. I wanted it to be exciting or involving writing. But I also didn't want it to be all about the I character, all about me. I really wanted to, you know, be uh, David Letterman or, or Jimmy Fallon or Stephen Colbert, the person who brings the other people on and, you know, gives them a, a good launching pad. So I really enjoyed that. And uh, I didn't have to, you know, recount my exploits so much. So that was a challenge, that kind of writing. I enjoyed it a lot. I have a, in fact, Colicchio, we were at a mutual friend's wedding a month ago on Long Island. And he said, you know, you should do the same book. I'll call it my my meal of a lifetime. <laughs> there you thought, go. That's a great idea. You know, you know that. Of... I think that is. <laughs> I mean, it's. We had some people here, friends of ours up in the mountains here in Colorado this weekend. Spent the weekend with us, and we were making uh, pesto lasagna, which uh, pretty incredible. But um, we were talking, and and I go, oh, I remember when I first had such and such or so and we all started talking about those things and that's you know those are the kind of things you can remember a meal that you had wherever it was what the time was what it was who you were with all those things i mean meals are really memorable <laughs> uh, I mean, so I, well, I think that's a good idea yeah and there's a lot of great writers who've done that and you know written about meals so i'm hoping to do that i'd like to get started on that yeah yeah, I think that's a good idea. That's a great idea. Well, since you mentioned oh, Tom, can you tell us his story? I guess his takes place in the Baja. And um, I liked your little caption here. It says, um, Tom Calicchio. It's Calicchio, right? Um, no, Calicchio, with a hard K. Calicchio. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's on the, you know, the uh, cooking shows. It says, Tom is a, a chef, food activist, and consummate fly fisher. I once saw him cook a rack of veal and morels on a single burner Coleman stove in the rain. <laughs> so from there, why don't you tell us about Tom and his story? Well, you know, I'll back up a little. When, like I said, when I first met Tom, I was writing a story about the making of a restaurant uh, that he was the chef, he would become the chef at Gramercy Tavern. And a very interesting thing struck me when I was at his house, I guess for the first time. He, he made us spaghetti and meatballs, 
from his New Jersey childhood. And I saw how beautifully sparsely tied his flies were. And it occurred to me that chefs, under they're like fly tires, fly, fly fishermen, in that they're not working with a shop manual for a motorcycle where it tells you three turns to the right of the screw and then, you know, you're ready to go on to the next. You have to feel your way through organic materials and some way have a conversation with them. And that's what fly tying is about. That's what fly fishing is about. And that's what cooking is about. So I've, I have found that crossover with, between people who can cook and people who like to fly fish. Not everybody is good at both. So Tom was a trout fisherman when I met him, and uh, he began to saltwater fly fish. I may have put him onto his first saltwater fish, which were bluefish out in the North Shore of Long Island uh, a long time ago. And then he, ju he just got crazed with it, and he became a permit hunter. He went to the Key West all the time, fished with Simon Becker, and caught a bunch of permit. Way outshone me there. And then he got the big game bug and the marlin bug. And so he went to the Baja on a boat. The tray was on, Trey Combs. And uh, they just, you know, lit into a bunch of white marlin. I've never really tried to do anything like that. I sort of have a, an upper size limit, which is the occasional tarpon. But, you know, Tom has this wonderful adventure, not unlike what Zane Gray did when he took off from San Diego and fished down the coast of South America, you know, a hundred some years ago, uh, he fished those Baja waters. And uh, Tom's really technical about his knots and his tippet and line class, and uh, he gets that across in that story without getting in the weeds about it. So, a really good piece. But like Tom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he, uh, and Trey Combs. I just interviewed him about steelhead fishing. He just put out a really nice kind of coffee table book about steelhead and Atlantic salmon flies. But um, he also wrote a book, yeah, Blue Water Fly Fishing. But Trey yeah. Combs, he was the man down there at that time. I mean, he was yep. the guy you go with. Uh, yep. So Tom picked the right boat. I'm telling you that. Yeah. He, yeah, he, yeah. He, he did his homework. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, sounds exciting. Sounds terribly exciting, um, but it's kind of like probably one of those like cooking a big tarpon. The excitement is all there until you actually get them hooked good, and then it just becomes kind of gruesome work <laughs> to get them in. Uh, oh, but yeah. um, what do I what yeah. do I do now? Yeah, now I, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, so. Um, let me take a, uh, another quick break, and uh, then we'll come back, and we'll do our last segment here and finish up. So uh, hang tight, and I'll be right back here. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with the restoration of habitats like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. 
FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all types of fish to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. Listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, we're talking with Peter Kamini about the catch of a lifetime. Uh, if you'd like to ask Peter a question, just fill out that form on our homepage, send it in, and we'll try to get it answered tonight on the show. So, um, great. Well, let's see here, Peter. Silas Gray from Joplin, Missouri, wrote in. Silas has been listening to my show forever, I think, probably since it started. But uh, he, he wrote in something. With the popularity of stories presented through video and audio, is there still a place for the written word? Good question. Good question. I guess time will tell. You know, I really don't listen. There are fewer places to write than there were when I started writing about fly fishing. And there are better films being done. I mean, video is a great communication form. So I don't have the answer there. Um, gosh, I hope there's places for fishing writing. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, I'm not letting it go easy um, because I think I've got probably a few thousand books in my library. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm obviously not one that stopped buying books. Yeah, and Silas, come on, you listen to my listen to my podcast. <laughs> but um, this kind of and and to be to clear, you know, when we when I do these podcasts, I try to make them as informational as as possible. And it's nice to hear a conversation, which I don't is hard to do in written form. But yet what I find in, in the word and the written form is we can get much more in-depth and much more detailed and probably involve the reader in the, the written word in a much more, I don't know, interesting and involved way. So that's, you know, that's kind of the way I look at it. I, I love my books. So I'll, I'll never give them up. But So Silas, read, watch, and listen. Uh, and uh, yeah. I think we'll have the best. It's a, yeah. It's all good. I was going to say, yeah. you know, videos, for a long time now, a lot of videos have been nice footage, you know, somebody occasionally saying, you know, way to go, or, you know, that's what I'm talking about, and guitar music. But now we're starting to see some more narrative and films and sort of really get at the emotion and the connection to fly fishing and to the world. There's a film that's been, I guess, part of the Fly Fishing Film Festival that Fly Lords did called After You've Gone, and it's about Rachel Finn. Rachel is an Adirondacks guide, a magnificent artist. I have a bunch of her things in, in the book, and I've known her for a long time. But she and her partner, Jeff, you know, her life's partner, they would take guided trips. Uh, they would guide trips down rivers in Alaska, you know, through grizzly territory, 
and they're just a wonderful team. And Jeff died a few years ago, so Rachel was pretty shattered, and uh, she kept fishing and doing art, and that's what kept her afloat. And she's really an irrepressible figure. And uh, Flawlords did a piece with her trout fishing and dorado fishing in in Mexico, and you really get a sense of a person who's lived a life, not just someone you know who happened to be at a pretty place catching nice fish. So there is room to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And um, I have found that the, many of the films nowadays are, you know, rather than, hey, we're catching a big fish, there's a story, you know, and it's the story behind the big fish that's really moving and important at times. But uh, um, the story or, behind, the, or the, the story behind the little fish. It's just the story. The little fish? Or the fish I you didn't catch at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where your, your book comes into play uh, at times, too. Yeah. Um, what was the most surprising or unexpected story you came across during your research? Well, all right. A woman named uh, Paige Wallace, who's a, a videographer, a photographer, where is she? Somewhere on the way. I mean, she's in Oregon. And uh, she seems to throw an ingenious piece. She likes swing dancing, you know, with a, a partner. And uh, so she talks about sort of like meeting somebody and dancing with them for the first time. And kind of, you know, a bit of the romantic thrill that goes through you as you start to communicate back and forth. And then she takes that same thing to seeing a fish and getting on the line and the dance backwards and forwards and how you are communicating. And it's just a, a wonderful, you know, bright and uh, fresh take on things. And it also is, there's a lot of that in this book, something that's very much from a woman's point of view, which uh, fly fishing writing is, in its early years, or for most of its history, has, history has not been known for. I sent that story to Joan Wolfe, uh, who, you know, 97 years old, she's, she answers right away. She's cheerful and well-informed, and she just loved it. It made her day. And then I was able to tell Paige, you know, give Paige uh, uh, Joan's uh, compliments. So it was just like a little connection uh, that got made through the book that was just just wonderful. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit twist uh, that you didn't expect, a uh, connection that you didn't expect uh, out of your world, you know, maybe dancing. <laughs> and, yeah, how, and how that related. That's that's cool. What um, – and, and I don't know, in your writing uh, outside the book, but maybe with the book as well – have you done much in the way of looking at uh, environmental awareness and conservation and how uh, fly fishing plays a role with that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Always. For a number of years, the Times would let me do a year-end piece where I gave a wish to a, a number of conservation organizations what they would like to see in the next year. I did that to... Uh, you know, uh, for Yellowstone Park, I did it for Trout Unlimited, 
um, you know, it's a while ago. I can't remember who all I did it for, but that was a very satisfying thing. It's a two-sided, I think fly fishers have a natural, oh, fishers have a natural affinity for conservation. And there's a lot of great conservation work done. I mean, you know, getting rid of the, the campaign, get rid of the dams on the lower snake that uh, TU has taken on is a deep and, and broad effort, and I applaud it. At the same time, uh, trying to save cold water fisheries, what do we do if climate change means we don't have any more cold water? You know, they were catching Dorado in Montana. I mean, there's a real challenge. I mean, the overall global climate challenge kind of overwhelms, kind of overwhelm you at time in thinking about taking on particular conservation causes close to home. At times I despair, i got to tell you. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I like, uh, you know, I, my support is to those who are fighting a good fight. Yeah, it's uh, I I despair at times too because I uh, in my life, your lifetime, both of our lifetimes, we've seen you know going from all kinds of places to fish and being alone while you fish to now being a situation where there's just not enough water for the amount of people we have and there's no real there's only one cure for that and we don't want to think about that either so. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I am, and I don't know for your interest too, Peter, um, I'm interviewing uh, Steve Hawley coming up uh, uh, this spring uh, about a book called Cracked, and that's about the future of dams. And um, that is kind of a um, yin-yang kind of, you know, situation. I mean, some of the best fishing we have is below dams, right? And yet some of the best fishing we... Yeah, best fishing we could have could be there if there weren't any dams, you know. So, yeah. Well, you know, I always uh, look a little way, you know, a short drive north of where I am and uh, rue all the dams on the Connecticut River. That was the biggest salmon fishery on the face of the earth. And there's not a, a salmon left to go up it. And... Uh, you go, God, what we have lost. Um, right. Uh, so, yeah. 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 So yeah. Robert Frost, there's something there is that doesn't like a wall, something there is that doesn't like a dam. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, we need to finish up here, but I'd like to, if you could, maybe, again, either read or, or summarize one more story out of your book to share with folks, um, either yours or or one of your fellow authors. Could you do that for us? I could do that. John McPhee. There ain't a better writer than John. And he wrote about Shad, which is our obsession. He's quite faithful to Shad. I I fished Shad with him a a number of times on the Delaware River. So he had a large dart, dart as a dropper or a flutter spoon at the end of the line. He called it the stretcher. He couldn't say point fly because a flutter spoon isn't a fly. For that matter, his rod wasn't a fly rod. 
It was more than a little suggestion in that. He said over his shoulder, it's a bitch when you hit the daily double. Interesting, I thought, but I'm not going to do that, catching two, two flies on, you know, two fish on a two-fly setup. As the Wyoming rancher said to his little son, one gun is all you need, Joey, if you know how to use it. But now on June 4th, I was anchored just inside the New York Eddy wall, close to the fast current. With a small dart, dart doing nothing on my fly line, my resolve had to uh, diminish, and I tied on a flutter spoon. This is not a fly line. And uh, a fish soon hit. Nice weight, and as work it, the shad slowly came towards the canoe. Then the fish dove, dug in, became heavier and tougher. As shed, Rochad characteristically do. Line went out against the drag. None was coming back. Ten minutes, no progress. Twenty, twenty minutes. Every time I moved the fish, I lost the ground I'd gained. Thirty minutes. Two fish around the New York bank stopped to watch. Rod bent over, pulling hard. I cannot bring the fish up river. Thirty-three minutes. I was saying to myself, this is not going to end well. Uh, it's not going to end well. Before long, I'm going to feel the weight vanish. The fish go AWOL. I could see a splash on the surface, but the pull was still so hard I could not take in line. Something was going to break. Therefore, I reached around with one hand and weighed the anchor enough to get it off the bottom. I stepped on the rope to keep the anchor from dropping. The canoe drifted downriver while I reeled toward the fish. There was a row fish on the shad dart. That's a female. Is it? Yeah, no. Which one has a male, of course. Uh, I lifted it into the canoe. The line to the flutter spoon was still taut. What to do? I pulled in the rest of the leader by hand and lifted it into the boat. A second big row shad was there. Two on one cast. 34 minutes. It's a bitch when you hit the daily double. There you go. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good one to end the show on. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, um, yeah, we've got to, to wrap things up here. Um, Excuse me for getting, uh, and, mixing up boys, boys and girls there on what's Roe and what's milk. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking Roe, I don't know anything about Shad, but Roe would mean, to me, one full of eggs maybe, but I don't know. That's, but, that uh, is, maybe. you are correct, sir. You are correct. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, stick with me here, Peter. We're going to give away your book here in just a few minutes, and uh, – we're also giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. So uh, stick with me here and uh, help me get a winner. And we'll do that in just a few seconds. The Bonefish and Tarpon Trust works very hard to safeguard the future of our beloved flats fisheries, from protecting spawning sites threatened by unsustainable fishing pressure to securing historic funding to restore Florida's Everglades and estuaries. Thanks to their members, they've expanded their conservation to the Bahamas, Belize, and Mexico. There's still much more work to do, and they need your help. With your support, they can ensure that the flats fishery is healthy and sustainable now and for generations to come. Visit btt.org and become a member of the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust today. Again, that's btt.org. And just a reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute to give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. 
Well, now it's time to give away our prizes. Uh, the winners for the drawings are randomly selected from the show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show so you don't miss out on uh, your chance to win some of these great prizes. Now, if you are one of the lucky winners, we'll contact you after the show to collect your information so we can deliver your prize to you. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org and um, check out all the fine work that they do do there. Um, the Let me fire up my database and have it pick the winner. Looks like the winner is going to be Ed Brothers in New York. Ed Brothers. So, Ed, uh, congratulations on becoming a member of Fly Fishers International. I know you'll, you'll enjoy it. And uh, now we'll give away a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. To learn more about Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org, tu.org, and learn more about becoming a member there if you don't win tonight. The winner tonight is going to be Bob Harder in Pennsylvania. Bob Harder in Pennsylvania. So, and now... We'll give away Peter's book. And let me clear my cue. So what you've got to do is answer the question I ask in a minute through the form on our homepage. It's the, uh, uh, okay, one last question I'll throw in here, Peter. <laughs> I was trying to clear my cue. Phil McCartney wants to know about what your attraction with Patagonia is. Well, Patagonia is as beautiful as Montana with great wine and great steak and not as crowded, although that's less and less true. But it's just big, wide-open country, and uh, you got to drive long distances, but that's fine with me. And I speak Spanish, so that's fun. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. And nice fish, too, right? So um, Amazing, amazing. I yeah, mean, yeah. It's just, there's this. I go to uh, Estancia Laguna Verde on, on Strobel Lake, also known as Jurassic Lake, and, man, catching a 20-pound rainbow on, you know, a size 14 Prince Nymph wow. is hard to beat. Yeah, yeah. Great, great. Well, let me uh, ask my question here. Um, this is kind of an obscure one, but um, when uh, Peter was telling his story about going fishing, on his way to the stream, he ate something. What? Not at the store, but on the way to the stream, he ate something. What did he eat? What did he eat? And uh, now, Peter, I have to wait a minute or so because there's a slight delay in the broadcast, and I have to type. So um, we'll see if they caught that little thing in your story. But uh, I've done that so many times. That kind of rang true for me. <laughs> so. Yeah, that and raspberries. Oh, I might have given away a tip there. All right, I'm still waiting for somebody. No, the Clark bar was at the store with the cup of coffee. Okay. Oh, that would have, that would have been my answer. Oh, I would have lost. Uh, <laughs> that would have been your answer. <laughs> yeah, no, right. was... I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Yeah, it was uh, something on the railroad tracks, and I've got uh, I've got a, a I've got an answer, and I know he'll enjoy your book. Phil McCartney says strawberries, strawberries. So wild, that wild was the answer I was looking for. Yeah. Yep. So um, so Phil, send me your address again. Uh, Phil's been a long time listener of the show too. I know he'll just love this book, uh, and his wife is a fly fisher as well. 
and I know they'll enjoy the book. So send me your address, and then I'll uh, we'll get it sent out to you. And uh, appreciate you playing and paying attention. And um, that's the uh, thanks for playing. Well, um, Peter, thank you so much for taking your time. I know it's really late on the East Coast, but thanks for sticking with us and uh, and sharing your experiences and and your process of writing and your storytelling. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, glad you could could be on the show. That's, that's terrific. So there's still time before Christmas, the catch of a lifetime, folks. There you go. And you can uh, find it on Amazon. Uh, lots of copies available, so check it out, folks. Yeah. It's, it's right. on Amazon. Um, also, I'd be really happy if your local fly shop or bookstore ordered it for you, too. There you go. Okay. All righty. Um, so hopefully you've all found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't looked for the link at the top of the menu, you'll find uh, over 390 shows in there. Uh, just search by things like, um, you know, keyword searches like trout or um, uh, Madison River or tarpon or both, whatever you're looking for. And I'm sure you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find there. Our next broadcast will be on December 20th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And I'm going to interview Doug Lyons. And our topic for the show will be the baton kill. Doug Lyons is a local expert, and he'll help you to sort out one of the most challenging rivers to fish, the Battenkill River. He covers fly fishing access, hatches, patterns, and strategies for both the Vermont and New York stretches. This is home to the Orvis Company and the American Museum of Fly Fishing. So join us to see if you're ready to give the Battenkill a try. And be sure to add this upcoming show to your to your calendar. Um, we'd like to add uh, thank uh, Fly Fishers International. Trout Unlimited, um, uh, Lee's Ferry Anglers, Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Yep.